we're right now caught up in these ideological back and forth character dramas and conversations. While if you do walk around Michigan or Ohio or Wisconsin and these places, like you see a lot of struggle. I spent a lot of time in Iowa and there are farmers committing suicides because it's getting harder and harder to be a farmer. And so you walk around these environments and there is this quotidian struggle that's happening, but it's not something that we talk about. We talk about this struggle between these two major parties. So that's what got me to, to to run. But it was that lunch with Andy Stern in 2017, where I went back to my wife and said, hey, I'm doing this. Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I'm Donnie Deutsch. And this is the podcast dedicated to a simple premise that Everything and everybody is a brand. Every institution, every religion, every product, every corporation, every politician, all brands. Brands is a set of values. And what we do here is a couple of things. We do our uh, big interview with a uh, individual about their own personal brand. And today it's for presidential candidate Andrew Yang, uh, who came on the scene in a big way in the year 2020. Uh, we're going to talk to him about politics and uh the future of uh, various policies that he's been very kind of controversial about uh, pushing forward. And we've got what well, we do our brands of the week, which is basically which brands are up, which brands are down, who's kind of driving uh, the world in the direction it's going. And let's get right to it. Brand up, obviously, for the queen. Uh, you know, 70 years reign. Uh, just a beloved woman. And I thought in, in honor of her, and I got this from GQ, these some 14 record-breaking facts about the queen, which is interesting. She obviously served as the longest reigning monarch. At the time of her death, nine out of every 10 living human beings have never known a British monarch other than Elizabeth. She was the queen for almost 30% of U.S. history. She spanned 15 prime ministers, 14 American presidents. She made her oldest son, Charles, the longest serving heir apparent in British history. Queen over her reign traveled over a million miles or the equivalent of 40 journeys around the earth. The Queen's wealth is tricky to calculate. Forbes recently estimated the value of the royal family's holdings at $28 billion. Those That's not all the Windsors personally, but those are some interesting fun facts about the Queen. Um, she's visited over 100 countries as head of state. She's carried out roughly 21,000 engagements, hosted 113 heads of states. And um, I'm not like a huge royals guy. I got to be honest, we'll talk a little bit more about this through, through the podcast today. I don't get the everybody's intrigued. I'm not going to like be a Royals party pooper, but she, you got to, you got to give it big, you got to give a big brand up for the queen. Really, obviously a fantastic lady and, and uh, just kind of some consistency in an inconsistent world. Um, let's talk about the Royal brand and what it's worth. Let's give a brand up. Somebody valued the British monarchy's brand. This is not her. This is just what the brand of the Royals is worth. At $78 billion, according to estimated consultancy brand finance, that includes tangible assets such as Buckingham Palace, as well as the monarchy's intangible value of its brand, which boosts tourism to Britain and sales of products that carry a royal warrant or a coat of arms. Her own net worth was said to be $500 million. Uh, I, I know I talked about all the holdings of $28 billion, but it's interesting, The royal. what is the royal brand worth? And according to brand estimates, $78 billion. Let's move off the Royals. Brand down for Trump. Just my latest Trump story. He's suing. This is, I love this guy's amazing. He's suing Fox. He's threatening to sue Fox News over the Lincoln Project ads. Donald Trump threatened Fox News with a lawsuit for running political ads produced by the quote unquote perverts and lowlifes of the Lincoln Project. 
He said, I thought we ran away to the asylum after the last catastrophic campaign, which charges made against them were big time sleaze and get me get me getting mil- millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016. He calls, he said, the pervert should not be allowed to false advertise and Fox News should not allow it to happen. See you in court. There you go. Speaking of Trump, most Americans see Trump's MAGA as a threat to democracy, 55% of respondents. And one in four Republicans say that Trump's Make America Great is threat Americans, Democrat foundations. And as I've said on the show before, and I've said on MSNBC, that's the platform for the Democrats. Either choose us or choose the other democracy. Choose us or choose fascism. Choose us or choose pro-insurrection. Choose us or choose elections of false. Choose us or choose end of abortion. I mean, it's just, it's there for the taking. I mean, the, the numbers don't lie. So there you go. Brand down for Steve Batten. What a sleazebag this guy is. He he surrendered and, and pleaded not guilty to allegedly scamming. He was uh, in he turned himself in and surrendered and pleaded not guilty to allegedly scamming people who inexplicably forked over a collective $25 million plus of their own money to build a wall, charged them with two felony counts of money laundering, two felony counts of conspiracy, one felony count of scheming to fraud, and one disamina count of conspiracy. His corporation, Build a Wall Inc., was also charged. He, quote unquote, this is according to Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, uh, Stephen Batten Act is the architect of a multi million dollar scheme to defraud thousands of donors across the country. Class Act, and there is Trump's main man. Brand up for guaranteed income programs. I put this in there. We're going to be talking to Andrew Yang. That was one of his platforms running for president. This is interesting. Los Angeles conducted one of the nation's largest experiments with a guaranteed income. The idea is the best way to close the wealth gap and give people the opportunity to build a more stable life is to provide unrestricted cash payments to some of the most vulnerable Americans. It's sometimes referred to as universal basic income. More than 48 guaranteed income programs have been started nationwide since 2020. California is the epicenter. The Los Angeles program, funded primarily by the city, benefits 3,200 people of at least one child, as well as an annual income below the federal poverty level. Several cities have moved ahead with the efforts using private money. Oakland pledged to give 600 low-income families 500 bucks for 18 months. So the simple premise is give people cash in their pockets every month. It will help them out of um, their, their very, very, very um, difficult lives and stimulate the economy obviously when we have inflation going there's there's and and obviously people who are you know there are people on both sides of this argument and i could give chapter and verse on both sides i'm not in favor of it i just think it's once we just start purely giving money away i don't know if that's the correct answer that's me but what do i know this is a really nice story. Bring up for Princeton. Princeton to cover all college bills for families making up to $100,000. So if you if your family makes less than $100,000, Princeton will pay their whole full way through. And that's great. And that's that's the kind of thing we like to hear. That that is there's that to me has a aspiration to it, but there's a it's not just giving money away, it's giving money away with a aspiration attached to it. So we'll see. Brand up for free food in the office. Food is getting much more expensive, but not at work. 51% of companies are offering free snacks and beverages in 2022, up from 31% in 2019. And I got to tell you, as a guy who used to run a company, this is where the world has come. That's really important to people. They love getting their free food at work. It's like whenever I tour an office, it's the first thing they'll show. And oh, and here's our cafe. And here's a, you know, it's, and once you put the toothpaste comes out of the tube, you can't put it back in. That's kind of here to stay. I think for any, New age company for any company that serve that uh, big base their employees young people, they want their free snacks. Here's some really good news. Also, uh, brand up for eating out. 
More people are eating out than pre-COVID. This is interesting. Open Table, the reservation booking platform, says that more people are dining out now than before the pandemic. That's as good as you can get. I mean, this is not just people are back in the restaurants. This is they're back bigger than pre-pandemic. And that's, of course, great news for the economy and great news for the restaurant business. So along those same lines, uh, brand up for holiday travel. Labor Day marked the first holiday weekend to exceed pre-pandemic air travel levels. Nearly 9 million people passed through the nation's airports during the Labor Day. Passengers between Friday and Monday, which was, uh, uh, that screened 8.76 million exactly. And that was 102% versus pre-COVID Labor Day travel. So just like restaurants, travel is up pre-COVID. And that's really good news. Okay, brand up. You may not know who this guy is. Guantum, I think I pronounced it right. Guantum Andani is the world's wealthiest man. He's wealthy in Jeff Bezos. He's from India. The tycoon's net worth has skyrocketed over $60 billion to $148 billion, making him the biggest uh, gainer. Uh, has already made him richer than Google, founder Larry Page, and billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Shares of his companies have climbed over 1,000% since the pandemic hit. He's in all kinds of businesses, particularly in his energy businesses. Uh, his transmission share prices boomed over 1,000. So I'm not quite sure why all his businesses are up 1,000%. But that is the world's richest man. Brand down for Kim Kardashian. And this is, I'm, I'm doing this for a reason because the, the, it is such a powerful brand. But to me, brands start to lose their potency when they get diluted. And she's launching a new private equity firm, Sky Partners, SKKY. The reality television star turned entrepreneur is adding yet another business. She's teaming up with ex Carla executive Jay Sammons to launch a private equity firm. I, I guess... My feeling is the very thing that makes Kim Kardashian's brands license and brand extensions, whether it's cosmetics or fashion or anything like that, successful is the very thing that I don't think the expertise is necessary to there in private and private equity and, and financial services. So I'm going to give that a brand down. We'll see what happens there. Brand down, according to Bob Iger, I agree with him for the future of traditional TV and certain tr- streaming services. Basically, uh, quote unquote, linear TV and satellite is marching towards a great precipice and will be pushed off. It's basically coming to an end. I mean, basically, all you have to do is look at anybody under the age of 50 and they just don't watch TV. And that's it. There will be no more linear TV in the future. And the interesting thing I bring this, he brings up that not all, he said, not all streamers create equal. He thinks they don't, they won't all make it. He thinks that Prime and Apple Plus and Disney Plus are going to be around. But he left out the name of HBO Max. Now in turmoil after the Warner Brothers Discovery merger. Um, and we'll see. But certainly linear TV, it's going to be dead. Forget about just dying. It's going to be dead. And Bob Iger is actually right. And not all streaming services will make it. Brand out for summer movies. Uh, fizzled out. This summer's movie season started with a bang, but ended with a whimper. Uh, Hollywood movies earned $3.4 billion in theaters. It was 21% lower than the pre-COVID. So just like you have travel and eating out, post I mean, right now, better than pre-COVID. Movies still worse than pre-COVID. So bad news for the movie business. Uh, speaking of movies, Brendan for Harrison Ford makes his emotional return to Indiana Jones. Uh, the first kind of film, the first trailer uh, images of his new Indiana Jones was leaked at Disney's D23 Expo last Saturday. He's 80 in this, and there were scenes of him... Uh, uh, riding in great action sequences, riding horses through New York City on the subway tracks. Gotta love Harrison Ford. 
Uh, Harrison Ford, you can also see him in a Yellowstone, which has been wildly successful and has, has Kevin Costner, another iconic movie star, resurrected his career as the lead in it. There's going to be a prequel to Yellowstone with Harrison Ford in the league. So I think that this, this um, uh, trend of mega movie stars of the 80s, if you will, now becoming the centerpiece of major streaming franchises is here to stay. And I think we saw it with Kevin Costner, and now we're going to see with Harrison Ford. Brand up for Major League Baseball. Unveiling new rule changes for 2023, which is really smart, including a pitch timer, shift limits, and bigger bases. Uh, the new rule includes a 30-second timer to speed up time between batters. Pitchers will have 15 seconds between pitches when the bases are empty. But when runners are base, that will expand to 20 seconds. If a pitcher violates the timeout, he'll be charged an automatic ball. If the batter violates the limit, he'll be charged an automatic strike. Smart move. Got to speed up that game. Uh, baseball games will sometimes last three hours and 20 minutes. Move that pace up. There's no reason all the time should be between pitches and swings. And so I think that's a great idea. Brand up for, uh, well, I guess you'd say brand down for car owners who own Kias and Hyundais. For some reason, Kias and Hyundais, there's a surge in thefts across the U.S. They're not being stolen for money. They're being stolen by social media challenges containing certain models and cars. Of course, they're so easy to steal. So social media is driving, for some reason, Kias and Hyundais, very easy to steal. Social media has all these gimmicks and challenges. Hey, go steal a Hyundai. Go steal a Kia. Really great, right? Yay, social media. This is nice. Bring it up for inclusive styling. Inclusive sizing. Inclusive size is one of the biggest trends in retail living fashion brands scrambling to extend women's clothing lines well beyond the traditional offerings. The brass ring is to offer sizes 00 through 40, not just plus sizes 16 to 26, and everything from jeans and lingeries to formal wear. As the average American woman has become larger and younger women embrace body positivity and show off their curves, the term plus size and its negative connotations are rapidly being banished. The average U.S. woman wears a size 16 or 18, according to a 2016 study. And 42% of American adults gain more weight than they intended during the pandemic. So they're going to be upping plus sizes, so inclusive sizing. And that's obviously a good thing. Brand up for Doritos. They're offering ketchup and mustard flavored chips. So you, I love, by the way, I love ketchup. So Doritos chips that taste like ketchup, I'm in. I don't need to say anything else. I'm just in. And not as much for the mustard. But give me those, man. I love it. Uh, this is really interesting. Brand down for hot coffee and brand up for cold coffee. Last month, Starbucks reported that cold beverages accounted for 75% of its drink sales April through June. And even in the dead of winter, 60% of people are buying cold beverages. That's really interesting. I, I, I would have never thought that. So basically, even during the winter, 60% of beverages that Starbucks sells are ice beverages, not hot coffee. Who knew? Brand up for some new words. In the dictionary, according to the new Merriam-Webster dictionary, one of the new they add new words every year based on things that are happening in the zeitgeist. Shrinkflation and pumpkin spice are now officially in the dictionary. Some other words that are in there are subvariant, booster dose, uh, adorkable, yeet, uh, and there are some words. Yeet is used to express a surprise, approval, or excited enthusiasm. Yeet, y e e t. So put that in your scramble thing um brand down for saying i love you this is interesting hearing i love you doesn't bring as much happiness as watching your favorite team win according to a study new search has found the feelings of happiness last longer after your favorite sport teams in comparison to hearing a partner say i love you now this is a poll of 2000 adults 
that says, here are the things that you do and what gives you the longest afterglow of happiness. And the first is spending time with your family that it says that four hours, it will get, it will it give you happiness for four, I know this, this is silly, I guess, four hours and 33 minutes. Getting home from a vacation with a glowing can is worth four hours and 13 minutes of happiness. Your sports team winning is worth four hours of happiness. Cleaning, tidying the house is worth three hours of happiness. Getting complimented, three hours. Having a cold alcoholic drink on a hot day is three hours. Eating junk food is three hours. All these things give you hours of happiness. I don't know exactly what that means, but those are those are our brands of the week. Now let's get right to our interview with Andrew Yang. I'm thrilled at today's guest, uh, Andrew Yang. Uh, Andrew Yang burst onto the national scene as a presidential candidate in the 2020 election. Um, made a lot of noise. Uh, really introduced himself to our culture. Uh, he now is the chairman of the Forward Party. We're going to talk a lot about that. Best-selling author, uh, former uh, legal scholar from Davis Polk. I love that you lasted there five months. And I know so many people who just <laughs> hate working at these big law firms. And we've got a lot to talk about. Thanks for being here, Andrea. My pleasure, Donnie. Thanks for having me. Yes, the good old five months at Davis Polk. You know, Columbia Law had me back to speak at graduation this year. And I was like, you guys do know I practice for five months, right? <laughs> That's funny. Isn't it funny the honors we get, you know? I mean, it's just that. And so what I'm just going to, for some reason, in, in reading your biography, that just really caught me how you just were, you know, this amazing student. You, you took your 1500, your SATs at age 15 and so on and so forth. And you were this, just this brilliant, brilliant student. And the goal usually when you're a student is to become a doctor or a lawyer or something. And, uh, Especially you know, if you're you, Asian, you're, Donnie. <laughs> you, <yeah. laughs> okay. Or Jewish. <laughs> So, I mean, tell me, like, just tell me why you hated it so much, because that's like the dream. Oh, my God, a white shoe law firm and, you know, boom. Well, you have a bunch of friends who've been in those environments. uh, And one piece of advice I got at some point when I was young was try to find someone whose life you want. And then if you can work with that person, then you're likely going to head in that direction. And no offense to anyone at Davis Polk, but the people there just did not seem that pumped (laughs) so a couple of things occurred to me quickly one was that i was getting better at the job and two is that i did not want to do the job long term and so if those two things were true i reasoned well i should definitely leave as quickly as i can uh so i I left to start an ill-fated.com in the first bubble which was objectively probably not a great decision um as my parents reminded me (laughs) but at that point you get bitten by a different bug and uh, you're determined to, to try and make a new path work. I used to have a show on CBC called The Big Idea, and it was all about entrepreneurship. And I cannot tell you the amount of entrepreneurs that had started out as in the law profession and just hated it. And just, you know, they just felt they were just like doing homework 24 hours a day. It's just, it's a very, for, you know, corporate law in a lot of ways is a very unsexy thing to do and very unfulfilling for a lot of people. You know, and and it's not great entrepreneurial training. It is in some ways because you have to be a structured thinker and detail oriented, but you have to also be very negative. You have to constantly think about, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? And let me try and document that or protect my client against that. And who the heck wants to spend their 20s just thinking about the worst shit that could happen? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very, very good point. So let's go back to 2020. I mean, where did you get the balls to run for president? I mean, you were a complete unknown. And take me back to that moment where you said, you know, fuck this, I'm going to run for president. 
Well, I'd spent the previous six years running uh, an organization I'd founded in 2011 called Venture for America that took me... Yes. And you and I are kind of New York products, but uh, I, Venture for America took me to Alabama, Louisiana, Missouri, Ohio, Michigan, uh, a bunch of places I hadn't been. And, and I got the sinking feeling that things were trending very negatively in those environments uh, over 2011 to 2016. And then Trump wins. And I think, oh my gosh, like things are really getting away from us. And and I'd been in towns and communities that had been blasted to smithereens by the elimination and automation of millions of manufacturing jobs. And a lot of those communities still haven't recovered, frankly. Uh, and Trump wins. And I think, well, shit, we don't seem to understand what's happening to us. Uh, we're going through the greatest economic transformation in the history of the world. It's going to get faster, not slower. Uh, let me see if I can explain this to the American people and also propose what I saw as an inevitable solution in the form of universal basic income. Um, so I figured, you know, I didn't expect to win, frankly, Donnie. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm a confident yeah. individual, but I'm I'm not crazy. <laughs> but but I did, uh, I I did think I was going to be able to expose the American public to some big ideas and hopefully advance meaningful changes that would speed us up. Uh, and I, I think I did that. You definitely did. Take take me through your on stage. You know, you're on stage with Sanders and Biden and Warren and all these kind of, you know, iconic democratic figures. And were you were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you like this is kind of funny? I mean, I'm just take me inside your head as you're standing at that podium. The first debate was a bizarre experience. Uh Bill de Blasio was backstage. Uh, practicing his closing. And so it felt like a high school play on steroids, man. It was weird. <laughs> uh, and you're there next to various figures. Uh, eventually, you build a connection um, on the trail or on the debate stages, because I ended up making seven debate stages. Um, but the first one was a very strange experience. And even my wife said when she was watching that first debate, she was like, I can't believe I'm married to one of these people <laughs> where it's it's one of the first times, even when I saw the picture of myself on stage next to, uh, I think it was, I might've been next to Joe or Kamala. Um, and even I thought, wow, that's bizarre. Like it was bizarre to see myself on that stage. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first time, and uh, if you remember that first debate, like I didn't get a whole lot of airtime, so it's like a big learning experience. Um, but one of the big learnings I had was really just how much power the moderators had as kind of traffic cops. Because if you try and interject in any meaningful way, um, you seem like kind of a butthead and a yes. jerk, and they'll just like move yes. on from you and ignore anything you just said. Um, and if you don't, you just seem passive and not involved. Yeah, yeah. It's you kind of damned do if you if you're not, you know, one of the top three getting all the early questions. You either just look like you're just okay hanging around. This guy's not doing anything. And once you try and jump in, it's a oh, look at this aggressive schmuck. You know, I mean, so you 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 can't win either way. I mean, look, the debates are still great. I, I mean, it's always must see TV. And where did um? So take me back. I, the question I started this with was sort of give me the notion for I'm going to run for president. Like just give me the moment that aha moment where you. Said, why not me? Well, Donnie, I, I remember pretty vividly when it was. It was a lunch in the spring of 2017 with a guy named Andy Stern, uh, who used to run the biggest labor union in the country, the SEIU. And he'd written a book in 2015 called Raising the Floor, where he said that we were going to automate away 
all the jobs and we needed to move to something like an income floor. And that book hit me hard because this was a labor guy who obviously had spent years arguing for the primacy of labor, saying it's going to get away from us and we need to move a different direction. So I had lunch with him in Manhattan at a Sichuan restaurant. Uh, I was buying. I just reached out to him and said, hey, I want to have lunch with you. And his book ends saying someone should run for president on this idea. And so I knew when I had lunch with him, I was going to ask him, hey, is anyone running for president on an income floor? And then if he said no, then I was going to say, well, I'm running. So he said, no one's doing this. And I, I said, okay, I'll do it then. And then he was like, who are you again? <laughs> uh, but that was like the, um, the decision point for me. I told myself, if Andy Stern says to me, no one else is running on this, then I'll do it. Um, and now, what led up to that was... Again, the sinking feeling between November of 2016 and spring of 2017 that our country under Trump was just... And this is something I will kind of lay at the, the feet of the media a little bit, Donnie, um, which is that like we're right now caught up in these ideological back and forth character dramas and conversations, while if you do walk around Michigan or Ohio or Wisconsin and these places, like you see a lot of struggle. I spent a lot of time in Iowa. And there are farmers committing suicides because it's getting harder and harder to be a farmer. Um, and, and so you walk around these environments and there is this like this quotidian struggle that's happening. Um, but it's not something that we talk about. We talk about this uh, struggle between these two major parties. So that's what got me to, to, to run. But it was that lunch with Andy Stern in 2017 where I went back to my wife and said, hey, I'm doing this. So you're the kind of universal, universal basic income, the premises, you know, everybody gets $1,000. And so tell me as somebody who is a, a big fan of capitalism and tell me why that does not fly in the face of it where you're just basically rewarding people for no reason and just giving them cash and then how does that de-incentivize the rest rest of the public so talk to me make the case well it's capitalism where income doesn't start at zero and the fact is capitalism doesn't function very well if you don't have a middle class it doesn't doesn't function very well if uh, you don't have active market participants it doesn't function very well if people don't have the capacity to do what you and I love, which is building a business uh, or taking advantage of an opportunity in their town. Uh, so some kind of money in people's hands really drives all of those possibilities. Uh, it even drives philanthropy and people uh, getting involved with their nonprofits or local religious organizations. Uh, so it, what it's doing is trying to help us evolve to the next stage of capitalism, um, which right now is creating more and more of a winner-take-all environment where you have uh, the the gains converging around like a smaller and smaller group of firms uh, and to a lesser extent, people. And talk right now, we're, we're suffering through 8% inflation. Tell me if I say to you, well, that's great. Let's give everybody a thousand bucks, but then that doesn't drive prices up that we're going to have 20% inflation. Well, you're seeing different causes of inflation. Uh, and certainly when I was making this argument, uh, inflation was much more under control. Yes. Um, but if you look at the $1.7 trillion we spent on the, the CARES Act or some of these other things, um, the fact is only about 15, 17% of that money went into the hands of families. Uh, the other 83% went into the financial system itself, went to very, very large firms, uh, went to airlines and the like. Um, and so what we're doing is we're already putting the money in, Donnie, 
Um, but it's not improving people's lives. It's uh, it's fast money that's causing inflation and other things. So if you're going to have inflation, I'd suggest that you'd rather it be born of the fact that people actually are getting out and doing things and not because we're, we're goosing the pipes, which is what we're doing a lot of. Let's talk about forward. Uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, throughout time about a third. We need a third party more than ever and whatnot. And, and Christy Todd Whitman, yourself, David Jolly, I have a lot of respect for all you guys. Talk to me about the party. Talk to me. About, you just did a very contentious interview with Jim, Jim Acosta, who really was going at you uh, on CNN about, you know, a lack of uh, kind of beef on the bone and tell me the principles. And I was, I was, I thought it was a little, I thought it was a little extra rough on you to tell you the truth because I think it's a noble thought. Uh, sell me on forward. Yeah. So th- this was made clear to me o- over 2020 when I was researching for a book I wrote that was trying to resolve a question I still had. So check it out, Donnie. Uh, I run for president and for most people, I did better than you know, you'd know any right to expect. Um, but I come off the trail in 2020 still feeling pretty negative about the trajectory of the country. And I'm going to guess that a lot of people listening to this also feel kind of bleak mm-hmm. ab- about the future uh, we're leaving to our kids and whatnot. So I sat down and tried to figure out why I felt so bad. Uh, and I concluded that I felt really bad because we have a really broken set of incentives for our political class. Uh, and it folds into media incentives, frankly, where if I ask you right now, what is the approval rate for US Congress? Uh, like, what do you think it is? And I'm going to anchor you low. It's pretty low. Eleven percent. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's, it's been reported as that low. Yeah, it like it, it's regularly yeah. between fifteen and twenty five percent. So right, if you were to right, say anything it. in that yeah. range, you'd be right. Yeah. Uh, what is the reelection rate for incumbent members of Congress? It's a great question. I'm going to say seventy percent. Ninety four percent. Right, really. So that's that's kind of a, that's kind of a dichotomy right there. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, it, it's, it's a better win yeah. rate than the Jordan era Chicago Bulls or the Durant era yeah. Golden State Warriors. Yeah, uh, you know, and if you you've run businesses, if you had a business where four to five people were unhappy, but nothing changed, <laughs> then you yeah. would think that your business would really struggle and suffer. Yeah, um, and the reason why you have a ninety four percent incumbent reelect rate is that. of the congressional districts in our country are uncompetitive in the general. Mm -hmm. They're either very blue or very red. Uh, And both parties like it this way. Um, Because then if you are a member of Congress, your only danger is losing the primary. If you get to the general, you win. Yeah. And most people listening to this live in an area where this is the case, because statistically, again, it's like nine out of 10 districts. So think about the incentives for the average legislator. If... You avoid getting primaried, you win. So the only thing you have to do is keep the primary electorate happy, keep them off your back. And the primary electorate does not resemble the general population. It It's like the 10, 12% of the most rabid, sure. extreme sides, yeah. partisan yeah. voters on either side. So if you disproportionately empower those groups and say, hey, if you want to keep your job, just keep them happy, then you wind up with two groups of legislators who will never be able to reach across a chasm because if they compromise, Mm -hmm. they get punished, they lose their jobs. A Republican uh, legislator actually said to me that an issue is worth more to them unresolved than resolved. Because if they try and resolve it, then 
their job security goes down and they take a beating. Yeah. If they leave it unresolved, then they just blame the other side and raise money and, and votes and the rest of it. So you have a broken system of incentives and a two-party system that makes it such that you don't ever have to actually do much of anything um, in order to stay in power. So this is what I realized uh, in 2020. And then I said, well, how the heck can you get out of this mess? Um, you need to try and transition off of this two-party system. Um, and it turns out that 50% of Americans now classify themselves as independents. Mm-hmm. 62% say that they want a third party. And if you're an entrepreneur, Donnie, as you are, and I told you, hey, you have a trillion dollar marketplace or whatever it is, and 62% of people want a new provider, you would think, well, let me go set that up. Sure. Uh, so the, the reason why no one has actually successfully set up a third party over the last generation or so is because the two parties lock them out uh, systematically in terms of ballot, in terms of media, in terms of resources. So that's the situation we're in right now. But the two-party system, the dysfunction is getting worse and it's just going to continue to get worse, not better. And we're never going to feel better about our future unless we actually change the incentive structure. Look, the reality is most of my total social circle lives somewhere in between. They, you know, most people I know are not like I'm, I'm a wardrobe of issues. I mean, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm a social moderate. I'm a, you know, I mean, so neither of the fringes appeal to me. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people like that. We're all a wardrobe of issues. The, the big kind of conundrum is let, let's say you, you gain success with this. And let's say in 2024, your party is, is the third party on there. Look, Jill Stein gave us Donald Trump. Ralph Nader gave us George W. Bush. Being that the party has a has a overall foundation of moderateness, how does that not at the end help, let's say, Donald Trump reruns? And that basically you're just taking votes away from, for the most part, you're going to be taking votes away from the left, not the right. Uh, well, that presupposes that we're in the presidential. Right. And there are 506,000 other races around the country vast majority of which are uncompetitive. So when someone says third party, you think immediately Ralph Nader, Jill Stein, Ross Perot, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, right. Um, but there's a whole wealth of opportunity for us short of a presidential run. And one of the, and I get it because I ran for president. So people immediately think, oh, you know, like it, sure. it's got to be about yeah. that. Um, but one case in point, I want to point out to folks who are interested in this stuff there's a guy named Evan McMullen who's running for sure. U.S. Senate in Utah. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of Evan, Donnie? Yeah, Evan was a uh, was kind of an independent. Uh, had a kind of an, started at, from Utah a presidential run. He was a I forgot the name of his party, but he was he was starting a new party basically. Well, he ran as an independent. Yeah, so you got it right. He's now running for the Senate as an independent against Mike Lee, a Trump endorsed incumbent mm-hmm. uh, who like was texting with Mark Meadows on January sixth. That yeah. kind of guy. Um, but the the fascinating thing about this Senate race in Utah is that the Democrats decided not to field a candidate. So you have Evan McMullen running against Mike Lee in a state that Trump won by 21 points, which is, by the way, why Democrats decided not to run a candidate, because they know if they run, mm-hmm. they lose and it, it, there's no point. Yeah. Um, so the question is, can someone like Evan McMullen, who, like you, is a Wharton grad, spent 11 years in the CIA, is a Mormon... Um, really impressive guy. Really impressive. Can guy. he get the 39% of Utahns who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and then 12% of the 59% who voted for Trump who are more of a Mitt Romney type of yeah. Republican voter 
in Utah. And very tellingly, Mitt Romney declined to endorse in the race, which is frankly a very big tacit sign that it's okay to support Evan McMullen because mm-hmm. you have the Republican, his colleague, versus McMullen. And Mitt Romney's like, I'm staying out of it because I like both of them. Yeah. So when you think about what an independent third party movement can do, we can pile in behind a moral figure like Evan McMullen and win a U.S. Senate race that ordinarily would be totally uncontested. So give me the platform. I mean, specifics. Obviously, the theory is, you know, we're not being served by a two-party system and we're le- all the points that you make are incredibly valid points. Talk to me about issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's guns, whether it's uh, taxes, that where kind of you are kind of, let me lay out the platform for me. Talk me into it. Yeah. So, Donnie, this is where it gets fun is you actually have to go back to basics and think, okay, like, why do we practice politics at all? Like, what do we value? Why would any of us try and do something positive um, in this realm? And so we've come down to three principles that we think most people can get on board with. Free people, thriving communities, and a vibrant democracy. And so if you are for or against a certain thing, you put it in that context, which is like, is this going to help with free people, thriving communities, and a vibrant democracy? Now, there are going to be different points of view in different parts of the country as to how best to pursue goals that make the community stronger, healthier, wealthier, like whatever it is. Um, But that should be the point. The, The point should be leaders who are able to get in and solve problems in their community in a way that's working for them as opposed to have us have to raise our hand and self-identify on this completely fabricated ideological spectrum of left and right. Because to your point, everyone's sort of like either all over the place or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, eclectic uh, about it. Um, And if you allow people and communities to own their own approaches and solutions, then you actually can support candidates in Mississippi as well as California, which has to be the point because right now each party is essentially giving up on half or more than half the country. If you look at it, how many rural uh, elected Democrats are there? Vanishingly few nowadays. And the same is in, in, in uh, reverse for Republicans sure. where they're, you know, in these blue cities, uh, essentially they're completely uncompetitive. So the goal is to al- allow people to be able to run on the things that are going to work for them, their families, their communities, as long as they're willing to play in a pluralistic, diverse democracy and not become anti-democratic uh, or anti-pluralist, which frankly is a problem right now. So something like the corporate tax rate, um, where would this party come out on that? There are going to be different points of view on uh, the right answer from people, because I know people in the forward party who'd have, you know, frankly, a lot, a lot higher rates and a lot lower rates. Right. But I guess that's the, that's the rub you get into, because once you kind of can't really put together, one, this is where Acosta was going at you a little bit. And I thought he, he, was, he was too extreme. But I think some of the points he was making was that there's got to be a little where the rubber meets the road. In other words, you can't like a Republican Party can't come out and say, like it or not, they create a tent. And that's part of the, the irony of this whole thing is that they're too big. They have to be inclusive. And because of that, they're not serving everybody. But yet you do start to have to commit to some of the issue points to really kind of give. Now I'm going to talk as my branding guy to give the forward party a real brand essence 
beyond the three marching points that you lay, which are very noble, there needs to be kind of underneath that the pillars that this thing is built on. Hey, Donnie, I couldn't agree with you more because one of the things that I learned uh, running for president was that all of politics has become tribal. Yeah. And to your point, the way you identify a tribe nowadays is through policy markers. And so what we're doing in a way, check it out. If I say, look, we're for people being able to hash out what the appropriate corporate tax rate is and be able to disagree with someone on one issue and then agree with them on, on another. Um, for some people be like, oh, like, you know, that doesn't work for me because I want them to be able to know what they think the appropriate corporate tax rate is. But for others, they'll hear that and say, yeah, like that. that's what I want is I want a tribe of reason, of compromise, of true diversity and plurality of opinion. And so that group is coalescing around the forward party right now. And that group happens to include a lot of people that I, I suspect are your fans and listening to this. Uh, which is business people, because most moderate business people don't really feel like either party has exactly got it right right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you ask them where they want things to go, they'll just say, look, I just want things to work better. Yeah. Uh, if you want to try and put an essence on forward, it's the party that will make shit work better. Uh, speaking of making shit work better, I don't even know if this is speaking. I don't know that was a weird transition, but you... Um you tweeted out surprisingly, surprisingly to me, that you had issues with the raid on Trump's raid in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and you're a progressive guy, so that would be an unexpected thought. Take and, and you took a lot of heat for that. Talk talk to me about that. Well, I was characterizing the reaction of millions of Americans uh, to the raid that it was going to inflame and activate extremism in certain quarters, which unfortunately we've seen bear out sure. over the, the past number of days. I was not saying that this is the wrong course of action. Um, I was just characterizing what I thought the reaction was going to be. And, and the reaction is unfortunate. It's one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. But do you think it needed to be done? I think uh, as the facts have come out, uh, it probably was the right course of action. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, the communications I were putting out were based on what we knew in day one. And obviously, we know more now than we did then. Yeah. I, I um, My feeling always from the beginning was, you know, Merrick Garland it looks like a very conservative, bureaucratical kind of guy. You've got judges on it. It's got to be pretty extreme if they are kind of signing off on this thing. They're not idiots. I mean, if, if this ends up a, can, a big can of nothing, obviously, that's going to backfire dramatically on the Democrats. But I've got to believe, and, and obviously, most of it is still very redacted. It's hard to tell. But that they're, it merited it or it wouldn't have happened. Knowing, because they go going, knowing in how it's going to kind of electrify the far right and you know make Trump a victim and all, all the things that you were concerned about but i've got to believe in the end there's enough meat on the bone there or this would not have happened i i you know i'm with millions of other americans donnie and saying i hope that you are right like because you can clearly see the backlash of the negatives and so i i hope that the positives and the genuine need to do this were uh were properly weighed and you know we can just hope that they were so handicap the midterms for me uh, let's take forward out of this for a minute and just you, you're looking at where we are, both from the Senate and the House. Give me a take on things. So things are very fluid. And, you know, it was a absolute automatic that the Democrats were going to lose the House. And now there's a little, wow, maybe not. And it was very much a toss up for the Senate. And it's looking very much like it's leaning blue right now. I'm just look, curious your thoughts. Yeah, things are trending positively for the Democrats on both fronts. Uh, I think that at this point, they're the heavy favorites to win the Senate for a few reasons. And very when much, I say a few yes. reasons, it's really a few individuals. 
it's exactly exactly yeah uh, i mean and it, which goes back to the the flaw in the primary system is it yeah it, it and right now it's working against the republicans it, it it elects the most extreme candidate who is not the candidate that is really set up to win a general election yeah i i want to throw in a, just a very concrete process improvement that would help our country immeasurably and that's ranked choice voting so if you look at a candidate like J.D. Vance in Ohio, he won with 32% of the primary. And now, shocker, like people aren't sure how he's going to do because guess what? Only 32% of even Republicans, uh, you know, supported the guy. Yeah. If you have something like ranked choice voting, you have to have a majority of people express support for you, at least somewhere on their ballot. Uh, and that would be good for relative moderates, bad for extremists. Uh, this process change, uh, coupled with open primaries, is why Lisa Murkowski got through her primary in Alaska despite voting to impeach Trump. Like everyone listening to this knows Liz Cheney uh, got walloped by whatever it was, 18, 20 points um, in Wyoming voting to impeach Trump. Lisa Murkowski voted to impeach Trump and her approval among Alaskan Republicans plummeted to, in one poll, 6%. So then you're like, how the heck does Lisa Murkowski get through a primary? They had a completely open primary where anyone can vote for uh, anyone of any party and then ranked choice voting. So ranked choice voting is the key to having better incentives for folks and better candidates, which you'd think that the parties would be all about. It is amazing that when you look at some of these candidates that are being put up, you know, Herschel Walker, Mehmet Oz, uh, Sky Masters in Arizona, it, it, it's just stunning. It's just absolutely stunning. Your mouth drops. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, that's why I think the Democrats right now are going to win the Senate. This is the thing that has changed over the last 10 days or so, Donnie, is that now I think that the Democrats are going to be competitive in the House. And to your earlier point, Republicans were projected to win 20, 25, 30 seats uh, not that long ago. The Democratic advantage right now is nine seats or so, which sure, is really sure, only half yeah. that number, because if you lose five, then it's like, you know, a, a shift of 10. So their edge is very, very small. Mm -hmm. And smart Marnie is still on Republicans winning the House because the margin's so small, but they might only win by five seats, six seats, something like that, which is... Uh, remarkable given where the Democrats were. I thought the Democrats had uh, virtually no chance until the last, let's call it, you know, 20 days or so um, when all of these special elections and a referendum in Kansas and other things have gone very, very well for Dems. You think Trump runs again? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's just a matter of him declaring either before or after the midterms. And then I think well, he, I know I want to put it another way. I mean, do, do you think he's going to be the candidate? I, I, I miss. Oh, my, yeah, no, he's going to he's going to run and then he's going to win the Republican nomination hands down. Uh, you know, this is one byproduct of the raid is that pre raid. He was tied with DeSantis. Last I checked post raid. He's up on DeSantis by 30 points yeah. uh, in the Republican primary. So if Trump runs, it's his. But Donnie, this is really I believe the, he's going to be disqualified. I believe that something's going to happen as a result of this raid and as a result of some of these other lawsuits where there's a deal like you just go away and we won't indict you. So something along those lines. Yeah, yeah I mean, that that's one yeah. possibility. But I, I do want to say if he does run, he wins the primary running away. Yes. And and it, it demonstrates just how for the reason we messed up our system. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where you're going to have Trump against four people. Let's call it Chris Christie, Mike Pompeo, 
um, Ron DeSantis, you know, right. Mike Pence and a couple of others. So it's going to be Trump at 50 to 60 and then the other four people split whatever is left over and then he uh, wins easily. So you just have a really broken process that is disproportionately empowering a subset of Americans. Uh, and you wind up then with, I'm going to say like, there's a possibility you have a Trump Biden rematch, which by the way, 58% of Americans don't want. No, they don't. So if you have a broken system that's going to deliver weird outcomes all the time, um, why don't you examine changing it? Um, but then when you say, hey, let's change it, then everyone's like, oh, no, like, you know, can't. And it's like business people, uh, we would never allow our businesses to be run like this in a million no. years. You no. know what I mean? Like you'd look no. at it and say like, there's no way, like let's change it tomorrow. Um, but in politics, you imagine that it's fixed even as more and more Americans are looking at it saying this doesn't make any sense. So the premise of this podcast is that kind of everybody and everything is a brand today. Every every athlete, every celebrity, every corporation, every political party. What's the Andrew Yang brand? You know, my wife said this to me uh, this morning, so I guess I'll just uh, borrow it from her. <laughs> but, she, but she says like when people think of Andrew Yang, they think about the future. Well put. You know, it's interesting. A lot of everybody asked that question to and everybody struggles with it. But you had a very concise and that's a that's a great that is a great way to brand yourself. And that is a way you so as a, as the branding guy, I go kudos to that one. Andrew Yang, I really appreciate your time today. Continued success and keep shaking things up, my friend. Thank you. Uh, and anyone who's interested in the party, check us out at forwardparty.com. This system's not going to fix itself. It's going to be entrepreneurs and builders like us that make it happen. Thanks so much, Donnie. You got it, buddy. Stay well, all right? And that's our show for this week. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. We love talking to you. We love having you listen to us. And we'll see you next week on On Brand. 